0: in your Bibles to Romans chapter eight, uh, we're going to. I'm going to begin in, in verse twelve, uh, just to kind of recap a little bit, and then uh, we're really going to be uh, be focused on uh, 14, 14 through twenty five. Uh, so uh, we're going to be. I'm going to recap just a little bit, but not too much. Uh, there's there's so much here that um, that we need to that we need to go go over you're going to find today that I'm going to say some things that will really challenge your your perception of the future. and um, I hope you you'll think on them because they're, they're, they're actually life-changing they're paradigm shifting things that, that I think have, have not really been brought out from, from Paul what Paul says in Romans, Second Corinthians, First Corinthians. He's all over this. Uh, we have uh, we have not understood it. I don't think historically. I'm speaking of like since the Reformation that uh, they basically accepted the paradigm of of the Catholics and then argued argued with the Catholics over some uh, some very important things. But uh, some of the paradigm that was inherited. By the Catholics um, in the in the middle Middle Ages were then just kind of brought into the uh, the Protestant churches. So uh, I say that because uh, I want you to be aware of that. I I know that this is this is actually going to be a little bit shocking. Uh, I think it would. Now maybe not. Maybe you just you saw this all along, and maybe I'll be surprised. But uh, anyway, so. Bear with me in that, and um, and think real hard about these things because they're they're extremely important for our worldview in the present, our walk in the present, and and then also our future, which is more than just floating around on a cloud in the sky, in heaven. Okay, so uh, we'll get to it. All right, so let's pray, and we'll get started uh, in verse 12, eight, chapter eight, verse twelve. Our Father, we're thankful for your your loving kindness thankful father that uh, it's new every morning your faithfulness is is uh, like the sun rises every morning father we're thankful for that great love that you've shown to us in christ we're thankful father for the spirit that you've given us uh, to uh, to transform us to lead us uh, to the resurrection and father we just pray that you will um you will Uh, Be with us this morning. You'll speak to us, Father, through your word, and and, uh, Father, you would change our lives, change our minds, and uh, help us to think like the Messiah. Uh, We give you thanks now, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Chapter 8, verse 12. Therefore then, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if according to the flesh you live, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery again unto fear, but you received a spirit of sonship by which you cry out, Abba, Father. The same Spirit, the Spirit of sonship, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, also heirs, heirs of God on the one hand, and co-heirs with Christ on the other, if we suffer with him, in order that we might be glorified together with him. For we consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the coming glory that will be revealed to us. For the eager expectation of the creation longingly awaits the unveiling of the sons of God, for the creation was subject uh, subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of the one who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself shall also be set free from the slavery of corruption unto the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that all creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until now. But not only, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit Also, we ourselves groan, waiting for sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope, we are saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For if anyone sees what is hoped for, what is there yet to hope for? But if we hope for what we do not see, through perseverance, we wait for it. Last week, we saw that the giving of the Spirit was actually the giving of life. Of resurrection and these two words are synonyms life is synonymous with resurrection this is given to the one who believes in Jesus the Messiah it is through the work of the spirit in the Messiah that God condemned sin in Jesus flesh and gave Jesus life that is gave him resurrection and it is this same spirit that gives life to us who believe in Jesus Thus, the spirit we saw last week is the means by which the death and resurrection becomes personal and experiential in the life of the believer. Sin is also condemned in us, and we are given life, we are given resurrection. We receive it in the present by faith in anticipation of the resurrection life to come in the future. All of this, we saw, was actually God remaining true to the promise that he had made to renew the covenant with Abraham and his descendants. It was accomplished. uh, the, The accomplishment was God renewing the covenant through one representative of Israel, Jesus, the king of Israel. To summarize, the spirit is the one responsible for taking the sin offering of Jesus, his substitutionary atonement, and making it real in the lives of those who have faith in Jesus. Because the spirit that gave resurrection to Jesus is giving resurrection to us in a two-stage event, life now in anticipation of life at the unveiling of the children of God. The spirit that gave resurrection to Jesus is giving resurrection to us in a two-stage event, Life now, that is resurrection life now, in anticipation of life at the unveiling of the children of God. That's what our text says. We're going to go through it uh, uh, sentence by sentence later. Note here that I did not mention heaven, nor did anywhere in this text mention heaven. The idea of heaven is so worked into the fabric of our language that whenever we think of the future and our relationship to the future, we instantly think of heaven, that's what we think of, as the goal toward which we are working, that bliss that awaits the believer after death. I want to ask you today, though, to consider that heaven is actually not our hope, not according to this text. That is not our hope. We don't await being taken off to the netherworld, never to suffer the indignities of this world, no, no. Our hope, and you will see in this text, is nothing less than new creation, the renewal of everything on this earth, the renewal of earth, okay? new creation. This is what he's getting at. This is why I think this is so vitally important that we, that we read Paul. Very often, I think, when we come to, to texts like this, we kind of assume we know what he's talking about, and we, we make these equations with, like, we think, well, He's talking about this great future, and then we automatically just say, okay, well, he's talking about heaven, and we just go right on. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the renewal of all creation. God did not make a mistake when he created this world, and he is not giving up on it. He is going to renew this world. I want to be clear that uh, we most assuredly will be with Jesus when we depart this body, and that's a very important point. But that being with Jesus is not the final act in God's plan of redeeming mankind. It is in the sense that when God renews this world, we will be with the Messiah. We will be ruling with Messiah on this earth. And this is what he's saying. This is shocking. It's really shocking when you consider what it is actually saying. It is the so when we are, when we depart this body, when we die, each of us is going to die. Um, if the Lord doesn't return, when we depart this body, we will be with the Lord. Okay, that's what he said, it's what it says. And where is he? Well, he's in heaven, right? He's ruling from heaven, that's where he is. So we can think of that as yes, that's where we're going. We're going to be with Jesus, we're going to be with him in heaven. That is not the final act. Here we're dealing with the, the final act. We are not looking forward fully and finally to being unclothed. We are looking fully and finally to that time when we are clothed with the new body. As Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5, For indeed in this house, he says, we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed while we are in this tent, we groan. We groan being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. There it is again. It sounds very similar to what we're reading in, in Romans chapter 8. The mortal body will be swallowed up by the resurrection body. That's, what's, that's what we look forward to. Yes, of course, we will be with Jesus at death. And that is, as Paul will say, that is better than being in this tent. As Paul continues in the same passage, he says, Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Same thing he's saying in Romans 8. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, he says, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Okay? But this is not the final thing. The final thing is the renewal of all creation and the ruling of God's people with the Messiah on this earth. Therefore, we also have, as our ambition, he concludes, whether at home on this earth or absent, to be pleasing to him. This is how we operate. This is how we're to operate. But the pledge, the spirit, is for a purpose, an end. And this, in Paul's language, is what is called glory. The resurrection body is for ruling in God's renewed creation. And we're going to explore this. uh, We'll look verse by verse and look at at what he's saying here. What we're going to see, though, is that essentially there is a two-stage redemption. uh, What he calls sonship is also two-stage. So we have, we have a stage in which we're given the spirit of adoption, but we're awaiting the real adoption. We're awaiting the resurrection of our bodies. And then this is going to coincide, Paul says, with the renewal of all creation, the lifting of the curse from this earth, and abundant fruitfulness in the world. Let's note first the language. In this passage and up to this point, Paul has been using the analogy of humanity's history from Adam through all the way to Israel as a way to describe the plight of mankind. In other words, it is a metaphor. So the history, the scriptured history of Israel from or from Adam to Israel, it becomes a metaphor for all of mankind's history. All of mankind's life can be summarized by looking at Adam and Israel. Then, more specifically, he employs the analogy of Israel's exodus and deliverance from slavery in Egypt. Her trek through the wilderness, through the Red Sea, and on into the Promised Land to describe the whole of the current life and the future of God's people in the Messiah. In other words, he takes our life and he maps onto our life the, 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 the whole story of mankind, the whole story of Israel, and says, look. You are a new Israel. You are a new Israel coming out of slavery, and you're going into the promised land. This is the language that he's been using. He goes back and forth, back and forth, continues to recycle this, and and it's, very, it's actually very easy to miss that underlying story, but, but go back and read. Start in chapter 5 and read and see how he does it. After describing the renewal of the covenant with Abraham and his descendants in chapter 4 as the means by which mankind's plight would be dealt with, he circles back and begins with Adam in chapter 5 of Romans to describe the plight of mankind as the result of Adam's disobedience. Through the one man, he says, sin entered the world and began to rule. This made all mankind slaves, note the language of slavery, slaves of sin, a situation only to be put right by Jesus' one act of obedience. This was and is the plight of man, under the slavery of sin, in need of redemption. For Paul, however, the plight of Adam and those in Adam was integrally wrapped up in the plight of Israel, since it was through the seed, the descendants, that God had promised to put the whole world right. To do this, God would need to bring Israel out of Egypt, to deliver her from the powers that held her captive, which he does. And when he does, he gives her his good law, which was co-opted. We saw by sin and led to the condemnation of Israel under the law's just verdict. Then, surprisingly, it turns out that Israel too is in Adam. The one who was to be the the one who was the one through whom God would redeem the world turns out to have Adam in her, right? When we get to this this stage within within the book of Exodus, we will see that actually he portrays, uh, the writer portrays Israel essentially as a new Adam. What happens with the commandment of Adam also is then repeated with Israel. She herself will go into exile. She herself will wander about in the wilderness for 40 years until that generation dies off. But Israel would then make it to the land. And through her king, through David, uh, would be enthroned as son in the land. Israel, God was not finished with Israel, and God was ultimately going to renew all of creation through Israel. He was going to put right what went wrong in Adam, and he's going to remain faithful to his promises. This rest that they were given when they came into the land and they conquered the land was very short-lived. The kingdom would then split under Solomon's son, and the inheritance and the rest would be forfeited through the idolatry of Solomon. This is not the end of the story, of course. Paul says that all of scriptured history is being repeated in some way in God's new people through one man, through Jesus, the new Adam, the new David, the new Israel, but this time successfully. And in fact, the whole Exodus story becomes a story of our present lives in Jesus. Through Jesus, we have been brought out from the slavery of sin, the slavery to which Egypt pointed all along. God takes us out of Egypt slavery, sin slavery, through the waters of the Red Sea, the waters of baptism, and is leading us through the wilderness, Paul will say, our current bodied existence, in which we are eating of the fruits of the land, the first fruits, which means we are being led by the spirit as we make our way into the land, the resurrection, where we will be glorified as sons and will be ruling in the land over God's renewed creation. That's the story. And that's the story that he's telling. When you read Romans 8, you will see all of this. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Why? Because they are being led by the Spirit. They're putting to death the deeds of the body. They are overcoming sin. They are being led out of sin slavery. They're being led through the waters of baptism, through the Red Sea, through the waters of baptism. And they're being led into the land where they're going to rule in the land as God's sons, right? Because that's what Israel was to do. Israel was in, in Exodus. God says, let my son go. Now, what he has said at this moment is, let my sons go. And he delivers us out of Egypt, delivers us out of of sin's grip. The ruling in the land that follows is something that Paul is focusing on in this passage. It is what is called glorification. This glorification is what Jesus has now as risen son of God, the glorification of the heavenly body. And we too will obtain adoption as sons, which Paul defines as the redemption of our bodies. In verse 23, we have it now through the Spirit by faith, but we will have it in its fullness at the resurrection. Now let's look at some of the we'll look at some of the details of this and kind of work our way through the text I'm commenting on. The Spirit, Paul says, is a spirit of sonship not a spirit of slavery. Verse 15, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery again under fear, but you received a spirit of sonship by which you cry out, Abba, Father. This makes sense, since it is the spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead and the spirit of his son, he says also in this passage, it only makes sense that this spirit would not fear and it would not return to to slavery. If it is the spirit of God's son, it will not return to Egypt. It will go into the promised land and it will rule uh, forever. This spirit produces sons, not slaves. Note the language. Sons rule. Slaves are ruled. Sons are not ruled. Sons rule. And this is who we are to be, Paul says. I'm not making this up. This is right there. You are sons. What do sons do? In the narrative of Israel, Israel, as the the son who messed up, right, the son who continued to sin was ruled and dominated by sin. What happened? Went into exile. Went into death. We are to be victorious sons. This is who we are to be. Make that your motto. Sons, not slaves. Even you too, ladies. Your sons. Your, your sons in the sense that you receive the inheritance. You receive everything that belongs to the son. The one who received the inheritance from the father. And the fact that we are sons means we have an inheritance. A land, if you will. Verse 17. And if children, we're also heirs. Heirs of God on the one hand and co-heirs with Christ on the other. If we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified together with him. Remember Romans 4.13? This is where he was going all along. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants was that he would be heir of the world, the whole cosmos, through the righteousness of faith. That's what it says. You say, you look back at Genesis 15. You say, well, where does it say that? Well, it doesn't specifically, but if he was going to inherit the nations, he has to inherit the whole cosmos. And that's what Paul says. Abraham was promised the whole world. For the promise to Abraham or his descendants was that he would be heir of the world. There's that language, 4.13. As the first descendant within the covenant, he was promised the world. Not just figuratively, as in the world's people, but the whole cosmos. What does Jesus say? The meek shall inherit the earth. Did he mean it? I suggest he means it. That's what he's after. That's what Jesus is aware of as well. Like, this is not about going and sitting on a cloud, strumming our hearts. This is about the renewal of all creation. The meek shall inherit the earth. Of course, if the cosmos is God's, then his son inherits it. And we as sons inherit it in Christ. This is where Paul is going. Sonship means inheritance, a land, and the inheritance will be realized at the resurrection. What does it look like on the way to the inheritance? Well, it differs from person to person, of course, in the details. But we can say this about it. Paul says this about it. We are heirs of God, co-heirs with the Messiah. And that last part, very, very critical. If we suffer with him, that we might also be glorified with him. Death, resurrection, suffering, glorification. As we saw last week, both the death and resurrection are given to us through the spirit of the Messiah. Suffering, that is, death of the flesh, so to speak, is baked into the cake. One cannot have resurrection by the Spirit without putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. Our current life won't all be resurrection, but resurrection follows death. Death and resurrection, then, are the paradigm by which our lives are to be lived, and suffering is a primary means by which God's purposes come about in our lives. Our lives are to be Messiah-shaped, not just cross-shaped, though this is crucial, but also resurrection-shaped. And the Spirit is bringing it all about. It is easy for us to think that suffering means the opposite of glory, that somehow we've done something wrong, Or we're being punished for it when we suffer. But that need not be the case. Though we should know that sin can bring suffering. But to be a son means to suffer. Think about that. To be a son means to suffer. What did Jesus say? Take up your cross and follow me. Become sons of God is what he's saying. As the writer of Hebrews also says, of Moses, he chose rather to suffer with the people of God than to endure the passing pleasures of sin, Hebrews 11:25. 25. He chose to be a son with Israel, and this entailed suffering. But hear this, verse 18. We consider, Paul says, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the coming glory to be revealed unto us. When we lay the sufferings alongside the glory to be revealed, there's no comparison. Your and my obedience through suffering counts. When we look back on it, it will look but like a light affliction. Second Corinthians 4.17, For this momentary light affliction, he says, you mean like getting beaten 37, 39 times, shipwrecked? You mean that? You mean thrown out, thrown out of the city and left for dead? You mean that? That momentary light affliction is producing, he says, for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Notice I'm pulling from Second Corinthians a lot. Paul is saying this there, this very same thing. The apostolic ministry is what he's focused on there. But it is Jesus shaped, death and resurrection shaped. And the death part, the suffering part, is like labor before the child. Like, actually, you can't compare it. But if you could, it might be something like that like the labor before a child. There's no comparison, actually. That's expressly what he says. The sufferings can't be compared to the glory. Of the resurrection, but make no mistake—they are essential. Second Corinthians one five: For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. You see how Paul is thinking, over and over again: death, resurrection, death, resurrection. If if he is experiencing suffering, he's doing it because resurrection is following. He says death is working in us, the apostles, life is working in you. He has made suffering and, uh, suffering and resurrection, death and resurrection, paradigmatic for his whole life. To think like Paul, indeed to think like the Messiah, is to think within this paradigm. That's how our lives are to work. And this is the mind of Christ which we are to have. Hear it again in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, in the hymn, the Christ hymn. Have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or to be held on to. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and he bestowed upon him the name, which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. Do you hear the paradigm? Death, resurrection suffering, glory. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. The question, however, is will we grasp the nettle? Will we take it upon ourselves? Will we take up our cross and follow him? Yes, Jesus did say, take up the cross. But when he issues this invitation, he has glory in mind. The cross is a precursor to resurrection, a precursor to glory, not a worldly glory such that we see the politicians seeking as they prance about, as they seek power, this cheap imitation that won't end in glory. No, it's a glory through humiliation, through suffering as a servant, the poem says, through a life of giving giving of oneself as i've emphasized these clusters of ideas to some recently i sometimes get the following reaction i really don't want glory i just want to be with jesus and this is true this is true and but this is to mistake what the definition of glory is we have been chosen as those who are in the messiah we have been chosen for glory but it's not often the glory, the kind of glory that we envision because our ideas of glory are corrupted by what we see in the world. Our definitions are clouded by a worldly glory, the glory of this world, which is really nothing more than the glory of tyrants, the glory of the evil one. Real glory, according to God's word, is an emptying glory, a glory through humiliation, This doesn't diminish it. No. This is a true glory. This is the glory which the creator God has. Think about that. The glory that the creator God has is an emptying, self-giving glory. That's remarkable. The creator God is a God who gives. A glory that we will share, Paul says. Even more remarkable, if we suffer with him, that's what he says in verse 17. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 4, 13, and then 1 Peter 5, 1. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, hear it, you may rejoice with exaltation first peter 5 1 therefore i exhort the elders among you as a as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed you hear it it's all over once you see this like you can't undo it you can't unsee it finally what does he say here in romans 8 what will accompany this glory nothing less than the renewal of all creation. This is, this is kind of his, one of his main points. Maybe not the main point, but it's one of them. Verse 19 through 22. For the eager expectation of the creation longingly awaits the unveiling of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of the one who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself shall also be set free from the, pain, uh, from the slavery of corruption unto the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that all creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until now. Recall the story of the exile of Adam from the garden and the consequences of Adam's transgression. Genesis three seventeen. Then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. This is what Paul means by the creation was subjected to futility, fruitlessness, not as the end of the matter, but subjected in hope, in hope of the reversal of mankind's death In other words, in the hope of mankind's resurrection, Adam's transgression led to death, exile. What then would his return be but life from the dead, resurrection? If Adam received death, what could restore him but resurrection? And it is in the Messiah, the second Adam, that this resurrection occurs, in Jesus, the Messiah, that this life is found. And when it is revealed who the children of God are, those who have life, those who have resurrection, then the creation itself will be set free from the slavery of corruption unto the freedom of the glory of the children of God. During this present time, the creation itself is groaning with mankind, suffering as it were, along with mankind but there's coming a time when the creation itself will be renewed. And that coincides with the unveiling of the children of God, the coming of the Messiah, the, real, the, the true revealing of who has life. That's the resurrection. When God's people are raised at his glorious appearing, creation itself will be set free from its corruption, its limited fruitfulness, to yield its abundance to a redeemed people whom God through Christ will set over it. This is our hope, not some vague idea about heaven. No, a robust new creation in which to live in abundant fruitfulness with Jesus the Messiah. Verses 23 through 25. We also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan, waiting for the sonship the redemption of our bodies. He's equating those two things. We, we've grown, waiting for sonship. We have the spirit of adoption, the spirit of sonship, but we're waiting on sonship. And he says, this is the redemption of our bodies, new bodies. For in hope, he says, we are safe, but hope that is seen is not hope. For if anyone sees what is hoped for, what is there yet to hope for? This final line, and this is where we have to we have to live But if we hope for what we do not see, through perseverance, we wait for this.